Thank you for joining us. For your encouragement, we bring to you this biblical sermon from Dr. Charlie Dates, preached at the Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. We hope that it leaves you refreshed and inspired. If you're ever in Chicago on a Sunday, we'd love to have you in worship with us. Join now. This message already in progress. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 43. We're going to go down to verse 47. Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at a portion of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 43. This is how my Bible reads. You've heard it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may prove yourself to be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, do they not do the same? If you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles, do they not do the same? Therefore, you shall be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want to reread that first verse. You heard it was said to you, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For the next few moments, I want to borrow a title coined by the divinely inspired lyricist who many of y'all are too young to even remember by the name of Tina Turner. I want to talk from the thought. I want to talk from the thought, what's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? You may be seated. Will, will you breathe a word of prayer with me? Our great God and Father and our King, how marvelous are your works and how excellent are thy ways. Father, I honor you and thank you for the opportunity it is to gather with your people yet again. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would just calm the nerves that I do have this morning, that you would give me the grace to be faithful to what you put inside of me. Help me not to feel insecure. Help me to be free in who you made me to be, Lord. Help me not to be afraid of the people that are looking at me, Lord. But we ask and we confess that we can't do anything apart from you. So we ask, Lord, that you would illumine our eyes by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to your word. That you would open our hearts and our ears, that you may change us, Father. Father, I've studied, but I need your spirit. I've prepared, Lord, but I need your power. Free me from trying to be impressive, but let me be impactful, Lord, for your glory and for the good of your people. So we ask, Lord, desperately, bread of heaven, bread of heaven, would you feed us until we want no more? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. God help me. Throughout the Bible, it seems that God has an affinity for mountains. Mountains, those lofty and mesmerizing, quite extraordinary in their composition, chiseled and crafted by the hands of our great God. Mountains, curvaceous in their steep slopes. Sharp and accented are their apexes. Can you see them? Rugged and rocky, standing firm as they gently cuddle up under the distant bright blue skies. God seems to have an affinity for mountains. As I thought about mountains throughout the landscape of scripture, my mind landed in the book of Genesis. You remember when God had promised Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky numerous as the sand of the sea, but in that through his seed, the whole world would be blessed. But as you know, there becomes a particular problem in the story of Abraham's life. You see, Abraham was an old man, and an old man was he. And Sarah, his wife, was an old woman who was beyond natural birth-giving years. And to heighten the impossibility of the text, the Bible tells us that on top of that, she was also a barren woman. But God in his goodness and his faithfulness to his promise to his people 
gives them Isaac, the child of the promise. All they had hoped for, they beheld in their arms. Sarah and Abraham learned that God can do more for them than they can do for themselves. But in the chapter following Isaac's birth, God interestingly tells Abraham to take his one and only son, the child of the promise, and to offer him as a sacrifice on the mountain. You see, upon arriving Mount Moriah, after that long three days journey, in faith, Abraham is determined to do the very thing God had called him to do. You see, God has an affinity for mountains, but at the right time, the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham, and in the corner of his eye, he sees a ram, and at that time, we learned that God is indeed a provider. You see, God has an affinity toward mountains, and God meets his people on mountains. I'm in Exodus chapter 19, where the Lord reveals the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. God reminded the Israelites what he had done for them by delivering them from the hands of the Egyptian army. He says, I've done this not because of anything you've done to deserve it, but because of who I am. You see, he calls his people then to obey his commandments, not because God is a no-fun God who wants his people to live miserable lives, but instead, unlike any other God, he graciously invites his people to reflect his character and nature to the world, such that they will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. In other words, a people who are marked by the very character of the God that they serve. Then God tells Moses to meet him on the mountain. You see, God has an affinity toward mountains. You see, God, Moses went up the mountain, and God descended from his heavenly abode. And the text tells us that the thunder began to roar. The presence of God began to overwhelm the mountain, and it started to rumble. You can almost see the tiny pebbles as they began to tap dance at the presence of their powerful creator. And on that mountain, God in his grace gives his people the law in order that they could live and reflect the glory of the God that they served. And Moses learned on that mountain that God is intimately concerned with the human condition and that God is a gracious God. He's not a God who leaves you guessing on what he wants, but he's a good God who lets you know exactly what he needs. God has an affinity for mountains. And when God meets his people on mountains, people leave change. At the turn of the fifth chapter of Matthew's gospel, Matthew writes in verse 1 that Jesus went up the mountain. The, Moses, the image of Moses going up Mount Sinai to receive the revealed law from God must be on the forefront of our, our mind when we see just Jesus go up the mountain. You see, in Exodus, Moses went up the mountain to receive the revealed law from God. But in Matthew, Jesus, Mary's baby, but God's son, who is the exact representation and the clearest explanation of the Father, takes his disciples to receive instruction on the mountain from the very word of God himself. You can see Jesus standing on the side of that mountain. The disciples are uh, close to him, and the crowds are in the not-so-far-off distance. You see, all types of people had heard about Jesus. They wanted uh, to gather around this young Galilean preacher who's taken the countryside by storm. You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus invites us to a life that is not concerned with the attaining of power, but the giving of ourselves for the sake of others. This sermon is an articulate picture of what it means to participate in the kingdom of God. You see, friends, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to do that which comes unnatural to us. In a world concerned with taking, God's people ought to be concerned with giving. In a world saturated with division and hate, God's people ought to be marked by a people who love. And friends, this is a love that acts, a love that is not restricted to internal feeling, but a love that manifests itself in what we do for others. You see, this is a love that gives despite what one does to us. 
You see, friends, this is a very subversive way of living. This is a type of living that will cause even Christian people around you to call you all names other than Christian. And in our morning, in this text this morning, we find ourselves in the final of the six antitheses statements in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says and uses the, you have heard it was said, but I say unto you construct, not to undercut the law, but he reinterprets the law for his people. Jesus had already said in Matthew 5, verse 17, that I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So this is not a contradiction to the nature and the character of God in the Old Testament. But what Jesus presents to us is not a new law, but a new way of life. You see, these six statements show us that God is not merely concerned with what we say we believe about him, but he's also concerned with the way we live and how we are. In other words, the convictions that we profess about Jesus must not just be intellectual claims that we ascend to, but they ought to be intrinsically tied to the way we live, the way we move, and the way we have our being. So you asked me this morning, what's love got to do with it? And I'm glad you asked, because that's really the only thing I came prepared to answer. <laughs> Here Jesus, in his grace toward us, gives us a glimpse into a righteousness that is far better than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is a righteousness that's, that's better than uh, ascribing to the laws that suck the joy out of following Jesus. This is a way of living that's more satisfying than retaliating against those who harm you. And this way, friends, is fundamentally founded in love. I want to summarize my sermon in one sentence. And that is, God's love for us is not dependent upon what we do. And as a result, as followers of Jesus, our love for others, including our enemies, including our enemies, including our enemies, must not be dependent upon what they do. The text teaches us that God's people are to love their enemies, ultimately manifesting itself in what we do for them. Jesus begins with the, uh, this verse. He says, you heard it was said, but you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus here begins with a slight quotation from Leviticus chapter 19, which says, in fullness, you shall not take vengeance or bear any grudges against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord your God. As a matter of fact, a few verses later in Leviticus 19.33, God instructs his people not only to love the Israelite among you, but he says you're also to love the stranger and the foreigner in your midst. He says you're, you are to love them as yourself, for you once were strangers in the land of Egypt. It's almost as if God asks us to treat others the same way he's treated us when we were lost from him. But here Jesus just quotes that section of the verse. You shall, you've heard it said you shall love your neighbor. It's probably a, a popular line taught by the rabbis in Jesus' day. But the quote, and hate your enemy, is actually nowhere to found, be found in the Old Testament. This is maybe perhaps an idea that some of Jesus' contemporary would, would teach. You see, this may not mean much to you, but this is significant because sometimes there may be some teachings and Christian sayings that float around that may sound good but are not sound. This is why it's important to know the Bible and Jesus for yourself. If you don't, you'll begin affirming and doing things Jesus ain't never ordained us to believe and do. And just because it sounds good doesn't mean it's sound. You may begin believing things about God that God ain't never told him about us, himself. The Bible has never told us to hate our enemies. But perhaps it was a common teaching implied or taught by Jesus' contemporaries that Jesus never taught. But upon hearing the, 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 the comment of you shall love your neighbor, the question our mind should raise is the same question that Jewish lawyer asked Jesus in Luke chapter 10. He said, who is my neighbor? 
You remember Luke chapter 10. The story opens up with the lawyer asking Jesus a question. This isn't a lawyer in the sense that he was a lawyer like we know it that stands and, and talks Roman law, but he's more like a theologian. The lawyer asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To which the lawyer responds, to, to which Jesus responds to his question with asking a question, what is the law saying? How does it read to you? To which the lawyer says, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, not to leave it as an intellectual proposition in itself, he says, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you are right. Go and do this and you will live. The conversation should have been over. But the lawyer opens his mouth again. And he asks the question, who Jesus is exactly my neighbor? Undoubtedly, the lawyer and many others would have understood loving your neighbor to mean loving the Jewish neighbor or the person that is most like you in your midst. So the question that the lawyer was not actually who is my neighbor, but the question that the lawyer is precisely asking Jesus is Jesus, who is my non-neighbor? In other words, Jesus, who do I have theological proof not to love? You see, Jesus is taking in our text and pushing against the notion that we're only to love those who are most like us. And he does this by commanding us who are children of God to love their enemies. Jesus takes Leviticus 19, understanding of loving your neighbor and the foreigner in your midst and expands it and it says, the manifestation of the rule and reign of God's people on earth are marked by a people who love without boundaries. This is a love without condition, a love for your neighbor and your enemy. You may be here thinking to yourself, you know, I don't think I have any enemies. You know, I don't know how often we use the term enemy these days. But I think this text could also apply to the people that you hate, or the people that you can honestly care less about, or the people that you think this country or your community or your state would be better off without, or maybe the people in your life that you actively spend your life avoiding. Maybe that's who Jesus is calling us to love in service. Jesus goes on to provide for us a way to love your enemies. He says, pray for them. You know, friends, it's very difficult to hate somebody that you pray for by name. When you offer up your petition to God on behalf of others, especially our enemies and those who harm us, what it does, friends, is that it humanizes us for them. And friends, the, sometimes the hard truth of life is this, is that those that we utterly despise are equally made in the image of God as we are. Jesus continues in verse 45. He says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good. He also sends the rain on the just and the unjust. So you may be sitting here wondering to yourself the same question that I'm prone to ask, which is, Jesus, why do you call us to live this way? After people have done such harmful and hurtful things to us, why can't we give them what they deserve? But the question, friends, that Jesus gives us is quite simple, but difficult for us to swallow. Jesus is revealing to us what God is like. He does this interestingly by checking with the lo local weatherman and observing weather patterns in Jerusalem. Jesus says that our Father, who is in heaven, is the chief source, the reason for which and why the sun rises in the morning. And in the same way, he's also the chief source behind the sending of the rain. But that may not mean much to you this morning because it's likely that you're not dependent upon the sun or the rain for your daily living. I know some of you all may have a vegetable garden in your backyard that you tend to and that you need the sun to shine and the water to fall for your produce. But I don't know about you, but for me, if it's not at Mariano's or Trader Joe's, I don't need it. 
But Jesus' image of the dependence upon the sun and rain for daily sustenance would have been applicable to his audience in that day. Let me paint the picture for you real quick. Imagine two farmers. On the one hand, you, you can be a farmer in Jerusalem who faithfully serves God in your family. You can be the most faithful going church member. You can hand out the bulletins at the local synagogue services every Sunday. You can strictly observe the Sabbath every week, resting from your labors because it's what God had prescribed you to do. But on the other hand, you can be an, another farmer who is the most conniving and backward of farmers, who manipulates the wages of their workers, a farmer who utterly relies on their own strengths and resources to accomplish what they need to do. This farmer does not need God in their life because he is his own God. And friends, the truth of this passage is that Jesus is saying that whichever farmer or person you identify yourself to be, God causes the sun to shine on both of their crops. God causes the rain to nourish both of their fields. And friends, this is one of the most scandalous and radical verses in all of the Bible because Jesus says that God's love works like the sun in that the sun does not discriminate. That the sun does not decide that it will shine on flowers and not shine on weeds. The sun does not decide that it would shine on vegetables and not shine on weeds. The rain does not decide to fall on vegetables and not fall on weeds. But God in his generosity toward all of humanity causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall because he's a gracious and giving God like that. And what Jesus is saying is that God's love and compassion works like the sun and rain in that God's love just loves. The, the, the God's love is not contingent upon what you do. So the next time you begin to wonder and question whether or not God loves you after you've done something so foolish, don't look at your bank account statements. Don't look at your resumes. Don't look at on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Don't look at your spouse or your children for affirmation. But the next time you begin to wonder whether or not God loves you, I dare you to open up the front door of your home. Square your shoulders up, cock your head back as far as it can go and say, God has smiled on me. And when the midnight hour strolls in your life, and when life doesn't go the way that you want it to go, and the storms of life keep raging, may the storms outside be a reminder to you that God indeed loves you. You see, God does not love you despite who you are. But because of Jesus Christ, he loves you in light of who you are. God loves you too much to leave you where you are. He loves you not because you've been good, but because he is good. And when time falls tired and exhausted at the feet of eternity, God's love for you will be standing. But I wonder, is there anybody here? who's weary and tired of trying to earn their love and their validation and their favor in life. People may have called you bad names. People may define you by the worst thing you've ever done. You may, be, you may have tried everything and nothing seems to satisfy you. But I wanna urge you this morning to try Jesus for yourself. That my brother, my sister, you are not the worst thing that you've ever done. You are not the worst that people deem you to be. You are not defined even by the best thing you've ever accomplished. But my sister and my brother, God's love for you is based on what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. That's why we can rejoice with the psalmist that God does not deal with us according to our sin. He does not repay us according to our iniquities, but as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far he has moved our transgressions from us. Jesus is saying 
to those on the side of that mountain that children of God take upon the attributes of God. The more you follow God, the more you begin to look like your father. Jesus pushes the envelope and says, when we love even our enemies or those who don't do anything to deserve it, we are participating in the very heartbeat of God. He's not saying that our identity as sons and daughters is based on whether we love our enemies, but rather as a result of our being, as a result of our identity being found in God, we cannot help but love our enemies. That's why John can write, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. When we trace every action of love back to its original source, you find yourself in the very presence of God. And what Jesus and John are both getting at is that the very nature of God ought to determine the character of his people. Jesus is calling and inviting his people to love so indiscriminately such that when the world sees us loving our enemies, they will look at us and say, wow, they truly have come from God. But what do we do, friends, when certain strands of the church in America are not known for the love that we have our enemies, but rather we're, we're known for what or who we stand against? How are we to love our enemies even when we can't love those who we go to church with? How are do we love our enemies when Christian folk can't even get along? What happens when the creeds and the confessions and the doctrines that we confess don't align with the way we act? And friends, one of the most strangest and shameful acts of an American Christianity is that it's those who profess a high view of God and a high view of God's word. Those who faithfully preach and read the scriptures of God are the same ones who have such a very low view of people. Friends, if our Christian convictions does not lead us to be more loving people, then Christ may not be the center of our worship. What Jesus calls us to allow our Christian convictions to manifest itself in the way we love even our enemies. Jesus continues and says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? I mean, don't the tax collectors do the same? I mean, if you greet your brother and your sisters, what are you doing more than others? Don't the Gentiles do the same? You see, the difference between us and the world, friends, is that others love in accordance with how they've been loved. Jesus here uses the crooked tax collectors and the Gentiles as an example that anyone can love those who love them back. You see, it's easy to love those whom you deem lovable. But the difference for followers of Jesus is that we are invited by God to love others in light of how we've been loved by God. It was in 1976 when Stevie Wonder, as a tribute to his newborn daughter, Aisha, released his famous song, Isn't She Lovely? Isn't She Lovely? Isn't She Wonderful? Isn't she precious, less than one minute old? Isn't she pretty, truly the angel's best? Boy, I'm so happy we have been heaven blessed. Maybe you felt the same feelings when you first held your child and looked at them in their eyes. You saw the facial features that your baby had. You saw the gentle fingers as they caressed your arm. Or maybe you've dedicated the song to a loved one, even though it's about a child, but that's besides the point. <laughs> but you may know what it feels to hold your baby for the first time and see the beauty in their eyes. But you know, Pastor Charlie, what shouts me about this song is that when he held his daughter in his arms, Stevie Wonder always wondered what his daughter looked like. Since early in his life, you remember, Stevie Wonder is blind. Stevie Wonder cannot see. 
But when he wrote the song, Stevie Wonder had no visual evidence or proof of the beauty of his daughter. Stevie Wonder had no visual evidence of the preciousness of his daughter. But the love Stevie Wonder sings about and this love that he has for his daughter is not based on anything he has seen, but based in the truth of the relationship he has as her father. Help me, Holy Ghost. Let's, let's go. What now if Stevie has, if Stevie has the sense as a father to root his love for his daughter in the relationship he has with her, I want to tell you a little bit about our Heavenly Father. Because he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows things that you've done that nobody else has known. He's seen you do things that you've never told nobody about. He knows you better than you could ever know yourself. But my brother, my sister, he loves you deeper and deeper than you can ever know. Even God in his all infinite knowingness, he does not forget about what he's done. But God in his grace does not count it against you. When you put your faith in our Savior, Jesus the Christ, my brother, my sister, it's impossible to love those unconditionally, enemies or those who love you back, until you rest and embrace in the truth that God loves you unconditionally. You see, that's the catalyst that enables us to love our enemies. Because while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. But I'm also here to tell you that the Sermon on the Mount ain't the last time that Jesus marched up a mountain. This is one of the final time that Jesus walked up a mountain. But God, having an affinity toward mountains, was rushed up that skull-shaped hill called Calvary. And though he was in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be counted equal with God. And Jesus, who traveled all the way down from heaven to earth to be born in a barn in Bethlehem, Jesus paved a way for us to follow, but Jesus was caught up on trumped-up charges, and he was marched up the hill called Calvary. And those hands that never rushed to do no wrong were strung out on a tree. Those feet that rushed from town to town doing good to everyone he met were strung up on our, the cross. And, and at the cross, he was wounded for our transgression, but he did not wound us back. He was bruised for our iniquities, but he did not bruise us back. And Jesus, even when his very last breath, crying out to his father on behalf of those killing him, said, Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And our Lord died that day. He died until death died. He died until two sons couldn't shine at the same time. But my brother and my sister, we do not serve a God who's constrained to the laws of death because early Sunday morning, God got him up with all power in his hands. And that same resurrection power lives in you and can give you the power to forgive those who hurt you, power to love those who harm you, power to wake you up and put joy in your heart. But my brother, my sister, that's until we get to that place where there will be no sunrise and no sunset. For our great God will be our light. That place where sin will have no home. Th that place where the wicked will cease from troubling and the weary will be at rest. That place where crying will be outlawed because God will get rid of all of our tears. That place where every day will be Sunday and the Sabbath will have no rest. That place will exchange our hope for having, our faith for sight. And when time falls exhausted at the feet of eternity, God's love will be standing. And that's why we can sing and rejoice with the songwriter. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, seeking to rise no more. But the master of the sea, he heard my despairing cry from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help. Love. Love. 
Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for another uplifting and inspiring message by Dr. Charlie Dates, Senior Pastor of the Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. For more information about our church, visit ProgressiveChicago.org. Progress is yours through the gospel of Jesus Christ.